The following is a CSPN Media podcast presentation. Hello, and welcome to Know the Score. I'm your host for today's episode, Don Delorente. You can follow me on Twitter at Don Delorente. I'm here with my co-host today, Mr. Tyler Ball. What's going on, Tyler? Hey, what's happening, folks? Uh, you know, now it's going to be one of the uh, probably the toughest points of the year where you have the NBA Finals and the NHL Finals ending. Uh, you've got now you've got summer and it's about maybe 60, 50 or 60 days plus until the um, the NFL season. So let us be that bridge for you. <laughs> you can follow Tyler on Twitter at TA Ball One. You can also follow Know the Score on Twitter at KTSPod. We'd like to let everybody know you can find Know the Score online at CSPN.us. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and SoundCloud. You can also catch us on any app that allows you to subscribe, download, and listen to all podcasts. So, Tyler, we're going to get right into it as they're over. The NBA Finals have wrapped up Golden State with a gentleman's sweep, four games to one, as they clinched the title at home in the Bay in front of their raucous crowd. And um, basically, Andre Iguodala reached back into the Fountain of Youth and found one of those games, and it had to happen to be at the closeout game. So just kind of give you your you know final thoughts, wrapping up the series, the game five, and you know, congrats to Golden State. Well, uh, a few takes. I'm going to just break it down. I got five things to remember. Uh, number one, the uh, the Warriors uh, just proved they proved everybody uh, right. Um, a lot of people said that they didn't need Kevin Durant to be this good. And while that proved to be true, it was still fun watching. Uh, number two. Uh, the folks want to talk about competitive balance and the NBA. Personally, I think that it's always overrated and it proves that we will watch whatever narrative that's being created to bring fans. Uh, we're still going to watch. I mean, there have only been 11 champions since 1979. Okay. And I, I go back to that period specifically because that was when, that was when the Seattle Supersonics won and that began the first reign of Lakers and Celtics and so on and so forth. Uh, but still, there have been only 11 different teams that have won championships since then. And people still watch the NBA. And actually, uh, the finals ratings came back and they have been the best since the Bulls in 98. But of course, that was Michael Jordan's last run. Uh, next point is that uh, Cleveland could have still been more competitive in a series had the bench shown up. Uh, we were very dangerously close to going into game five, two games apiece. Uh, they did get any help, and part of it was, um, I think, some of the decision-making by Teron Liu, uh, not playing Channing Frye, uh, not playing, uh, you know, I guess not figuring out how to use uh, Derek Williams after uh, Darren Williams didn't pan out. And, and that, you know, that happens. But um, I just think that if you were, if uh, Lou were to do it all again, I think he'd probably retool 
his, uh, you know, he would have played around more with his roster. Um, and I guess my last point would be that um, three is always going to be greater than two. Um, I think that the advent of the three point of three point shooting has kind of changed the culture of basketball, um, particularly with the Warriors. I mean, we've always had uh, multiple three point shooters, but to have them on the same team and have them be quality scores, uh, it's just just incredible. Um, and I think that uh, when you add Draymond Green hitting the three point shot. That makes them from being a great team to uh, to use the dreaded word super team um, because they just collapse all they just collapse the entire floor. Um, you know, guys shooting better than what their size dictates, um, and you know, Draymond Green's uh, added Draymond, the addition of Draymond Green shooting threes well just just boosts his value um, because he already gives you high value on the defensive end and you put him on the floor with an Iguodala um, and a Durant who's who guarded the rim better than most anticipated uh, just made made it too much for Cleveland to uh, eventually to Cleveland to just overcome pretty much um, those are my takes I think that's the one thing that's kind of underlooked when it comes or overlooked rather for the Warriors your guys aren't just specialists. They don't just have a guy who can just shoot. They have pretty much, you know, everybody has three or four things that they do well that they incorporate on the basketball court. And then the fact of like one or two of the, the one or two of those things at the top is like, oh, yeah, they're great shooters, you know. So, like you're saying, they're messing around with the physics of how you play basketball because they're stretching you so far and your defensive concepts and everything. I mean, they're really changing basketball because for – Ever since the three-point shot has been in the NBA, the narrative has been a jump-shooting team can't win the championship because in the playoffs, things get physical. You have to have scoring in the inside. And, you know, this, the the talk that the Warriors have now kind of starting to erode, and now you got more people kind of moving to their philosophy of how they play basketball. To your point again, the final game, game five, bent scoring was like something like 35 to nine or something like that. So yeah, to your point, um, a game where Cleveland really outplayed the Warriors, as far as if you look at the actual box scores, as far as shooting percentages and rebounding and three point percentages, uh, Cleveland actually played better than Golden State, but then you get to the bench and everything. So that's definitely a good point that you made there. And then lastly, kind of like you're saying, uh, Steve Kerr, if you looked at the last game, did not play McGee at all. He didn't play um, Clark at all. He went with McCall and he went with um, um, Iggy. Iggy played something ridiculous, like 38 minutes. He kind of went a little bit smaller and kind of, you know, basically was kind of like, hey, you know, if they're going to, I'm going to put my best defensive guys out here, regardless of their size. So I thought that was kind of key to game five as well. So. Um, we'll move on to the legacy of the finals MVP, Kevin Durant. Um, a lot of people said that KD would be in a lose-lose situation because if he didn't play well and the Warriors lost, then he's going to get dragged. If he played well and the Warriors won, then people are going to be like, oh, well, you know, you joined the team that was 73 and 90 the year before. I mean, you should play well. So, Tyler, to your, uh, from your point of view and your standpoint, by him being the finals MVP, by him averaging the ridiculous averages that he had over 30 points in every game, um, what does this do for his legacy as he's won his first championship? 
Uh, let's let's just go to the point where number one, Kevin Durant has a championship. Uh, at the end of the day, we do recognize great players for being great. The whole dynamic of him leaving Oklahoma City uh, does not change the narrative that he's a champion and he fulfilled expectations. Um, number two overall pick, generally they expect the number two overall pick to be a dominant player and a multiple all-star and a champion. And the fact that he uh, chose to do that in a system where he didn't want to carry a team on his back, more power to him. Uh, honestly, I think that the whole uh, the whole concept of it being a quote unquote weak move uh, is extremely overrated because I think that you know my generation and maybe even further back has always dealt with the fact that we had teams that were that had superstars and those superstars were the ones that everything ran through. Uh, you look at the 1980s with Bird and Magic and mind you, those guys were superstars and they were promoted like superstars but they weren't the only pieces of that team. Several, several you know, the Laker, the Lakers-Celtics rivalry is littered with Hall of Famers. Uh, but, you know, because Bird and Magic were the promoted stars of the league at the time, every move that they uh, did was magnified or sometimes I mean, it, positive and negative. Uh, same thing with with Jordan. Same thing with LeBron. It's just that we put Jordan on a higher claim on a higher level because Jordan never lost in the finals. Uh, I think that at, uh, when you look at history, I think that Durant's greatness, uh, being that being who he is on the floor, uh, you know, a, a seven footer who is just unguardable and can shoot you know, up to, up to 40 feet is just incredible, but he has a ring and that, that will move him ahead of some people in their eyes. I mean, he's still young, so he's still going to score a ton of points. He may not have the rebounds or the assists, but he doesn't have to, he's going to be recognized as a great scorer and event. And with his other credentials, he'll probably end up being in the hall of fame, which, you know, that ring matters more to him than the hall of fame does. Uh, right. Where he ranks in the up in the echelon of other athletes, I don't want to say because he's still got a long time to play basketball. Where we put him, he just he still is determining that. I don't make legacy calls after a guy this young. Uh, I, I guess legacy wouldn't be the correct word to use. I guess perception of Kevin Durant right now because he's still playing would be now, the you, proper term to use. Now, if you want to talk about perception. Uh, he's he's polarizing, and to be honest with you, I I can appreciate that he doesn't care because, as we tell, uh, we tell these people, who uh, I've been saying a lot of a lot of times, um, the whole super team narrative is garbage. Uh, don't don't talk about super teams in a league where parity doesn't really exist. Um, you know, he changed Kevin Durant changed the competitive balance of one team, not just. Uh, you know, not the entire NBA. You know, you got you got guy, you got this whole super team there to floating around, but you don't want to count, count. You don't want to talk about the the twenty five or thirty so called terrible GMs that have shaped the entire league for the last thirty years. I mean, 
Let's let's talk about it. we. I can name you two GMs that are responsible for twelve trades that have changed changed three different franchises that have made them from either great to sorry or from terrible to NBA champions. So it's it's not. Um, we just I think that people want to. Um, people want the next Jordan because Jordan was casted as such a powerful figure particularly because he won on the court that I don't think we've ever really gotten over it as a society in terms of basketball fans. Just these conversations. Now the whole super team concept is because of Michael Jordan of their, of comparing LeBron's legacy to Michael Jordan. That's where this all started. And that's, and part of that's LeBron's fault. I, I give him credit that KD doesn't want any part of that. And I can respect it. I think the thing that, makes Michael Jordan such the icon is it's the perfect storm of the middle 80s cable television the popularity of the NBA the NBA is now like you know it wasn't even the finals weren't even broadcast live until like 1981 mm-hmm. so you know he kind of came in at that time where the eyeballs were shifting to the NBA. It was the hip thing to be and see, be seen at the NBA games. Correct. Then he struggled. So people got to see that maturation process of, man, he's on his way. And then you had the people who was like, well, he'll never win because all he can do is score. And then you had the other people who were like, man, when he does to figure out how to work all it together, he's going to be the best we've ever seen. And then it all blossomed and then everybody who had doubts about him shifted over to the camp of the people who were like you should have been over here in the first place and he continued to do it and he won and he won and he met everybody's expectations and when you meet everybody's expectations there's no there's no downfall for Michael Jordan there's no the way the press was the lack of social media there's no real skeletons for Michael Jordan you know what I'm saying he performed on the court he's performed on business he performed in the realm of being an icon as far as the shoes and the look and just the name and the brand everything associated with it let's get to the point where you know, that's uh, why he's at the top it's gotten to the point where people are are looking for negatives I mean, he guarded his image so well that you 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 can't you have to scrap, claw, and find bad things to say about about Michael Jordan. You really do. And the thing is, uh, yeah, and it is a perfect storm because he's an example of how perfect marketing can be. Tiger Woods was that for quite a while, right? But you, but the thing about it is, no matter how much you market. You gotta perform at the end because you'll end up with a Dan and Dave situation, mm-hmm. where no matter how much they pump into you, how much they take you from being on the fringe of you know the conscious of the populace of the popular people to right here in the forefront, and then if you don't perform, you know it's, it's all for nothing. I don't care how much money they prop up behind. You. I mean, look at Magic. So, Magic took took immense heat when he lost to Bird, and that's after two rings. I mean, tra- the the name Tragic Johnson actually happened. Right. So um, going on to kind of another narrative, we'll talk about the redemption of Steph Curry as he had, uh, you know, a finals that was actually lived up to the hype of a two-time MVP as the previous two times he'd been in the finals. He'd kind of struggled, uh, didn't have very impressive numbers. But in this finals, he almost averaged a triple-double. He averaged like 27 points a game, nine rebounds, eight assists, or excuse me, 
Yeah, eight assists, nine rebounds. Yeah, actually more rebounds than um, Tristan Thompson throughout the whole series, which was uh, key to the game plan, I guess, for the Warriors as they really focused on trying to keep Tristan Thompson off the offensive glass. So um, did Steph kind of, you know, change his narrative around a little bit? You know, everybody talks about, you know, regular seasons not really what it is once you start winning MVPs and things. It's about what you do in the playoffs, and especially when you make it to the finals. So um, does this kind of cool the Jets on the people who kind of had a negative – you know, slant on Steph because of what he has done in the finals previously? Uh, I don't think that it changes the the narrative because the, the entire narrative is that, you know, Steph doesn't, should be put on the plane of a, Lebr- a LeBron James. And I don't think that it's going to change the narrative in people's eyes, even though he performed well, because you have Kevin Durant. And I believe that although we know Steph is, is an all-star and he's a great player. Um, I believe that the emergence of Durant, not only did it become a bigger story, it just overshadowed how uh, Steph really played well, particularly after Christmas. Um, uh, Steph has put up some serious, serious numbers. When you add those, add that since after the uh, really, since after the all-star break, Um, he's, been one he's really been one of the better players and he's been probably a top three player in the league uh, you know but nobody watched and mind you Kevin Durant had was sitting out and they won 13 in a row uh you know when when Kevin was getting his his knees his knee scoped and and uh sitting out you know Curry kind of went back to the Curry of two years ago however because he has Durant it won't change the media narrative. I think he's still going to be remarked as a great player, but until he gets the respect of the players in the league first, when the players can talk and say that they, uh, you know, they can appreciate Curry, then the narrative will start to change. Uh, I don't think that Curry is going to find any, any fa- I don't think a lot of people are going to do any favors for him in the media either, but that and that's really what controls the perception. Uh, a lot of people started to see that you know Steph was Steph has been sold to us as the humble superstar when he's clearly not, especially on the court. But uh, the fact that he played well means a lot to the Warriors, and it just expresses the Warrior super team dynamic. But I don't think it changes where he is in the um in the echelon of the NBA top you know top 5 top 10 but not in the elite number 1 number 2 number 3 conversation speaking to Steph I thought that the biggest thing that actually helped him this season was Durant getting hurt for that little stretch of time there where he had to kind of go back and revert to being, you know, the number one lead dog. Because I think he wanted to make Kevin the number one lead dog just so he could get familiar with the plays and the counters and, you know, all the things Mm -hmm. that it takes to learn a new offense. But then once the injury happened and he kind of had to revert back to being the guy who's doing the number one offense stuff, then I think his point guard sensibilities really, which are underrated, kicked back in when when, uh, Durant came back. Because then he understood now how to work with Kevin Durant back and forth where, you know, hey, you know, KD may have it going in the first quarter, so I can give it to him and give it to him and give it to him. And he's such a good basketball player that once they start focusing on him now, he's going to give it back to me. And now we just change roles up. 
And that's how they could score 30 and 27 for a whole finals because Steph realized, oh, okay, you know, I still got to be me. I just can't give him everything. You know, it looked like Steph was out there trying to score 20 points and have 20 assists and let Durant score 50 every night. But when he kind of dialed it back where he got his points back going and realized Durant can score off of anything I give him, you know, this is going to be real easy. I just need to make sure I do me. They took off and they lost one game. They lost two games out of their last, like, what, 40? Uh, just about, yeah. It's like 38 and 2, 39 and 2 since. You know, the time that Kevin Durant came back through the end of this playoffs? The crazy thing is uh, there's a great article on 538.com right now uh, with the uh, the Warriors didn't need Kevin Durant to be this good. That's the title of it. Uh, you know, you have to figure out that Golden State's, uh, Golden State's threes, as good as they are at twos, they're so good at threes that, you know, they're almost twice as good as any other team. And it's there's an argument that, you know, they could shoot a whole lot more if they wanted to. And, it, it is, and it's true. Um, when uh, the Warriors outscored their opponents by 3.1 points per, per 100 possessions when Durant was playing and Curry was off the floor. But on the uh, vice versa, with, Curran- with Curry on the court and Durant on the bench, that number jumped to 16.1 points per 100 possessions. Um, you know, the Warriors dynasty was just, its it was built, and it's still being built on Curry's ability to just shoot from, from distance. And as long as they lock him, when they lock him up this summer in free agency, um, you know, he's going to get get that deal. He's probably worth, he's going to be not only worth every penny, but he'll probably still be somehow underpaid because of because of the value he brings to that offense. Um, I think if he keeps shooting, it's uh, that team's going to be very difficult to beat for the next three, four years. Especially if they take less money and keep the keep the core together. Right, right. It's a lot easier to do that once you win the title and people are getting a little bit older in age. You know, these guys are getting close to their thirties; they're still in their late twenties. You know, uh, now that the Warriors' core has multiple rings, you know, uh, KD now has his ring. So you know, you can look at three or four million here or there and say, uh, you know, to keep it together and have the confetti fall down again? Yeah, let's do it. So, yeah, look at look at Clay, look at Clay Thompson, who's probably the most likely to leave. Uh, I think he takes less days just because. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, you know, he'll he'll definitely make it up in just the winning and the you know advertising and things like that. You know, being they're about to go to a new arena in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody on that team is about to just blow up as far as when it comes to marketing and those type of things. Now we'll move on to the man in Cleveland. He's already in the dungeon. He started working out again, popped up on an Instagram video with no hair. He's balded out. He's gone full Dr. Evil LeBron. So kind of what's his next move? Um, a lot of people in the streets and the barbershops are talking Paul George. If they can get Paul George, they'll make a difference. They, you know, everybody seems to consensus is, you know, ship out Kevin Love. If they can ship out Kevin Love and bring in Paul George, that, you know, LeBron will have enough firepower to go toe-to-toe with Golden State next year. So, Tyler, uh, what do you see as LeBron's next move being? Um, uh, first order business is, number one, is to uh, – to, uh, Make this all official and resign, uh, resign their GM David, resign David Griffin. That's that's number one. Um, 
you know, everybody wants to say LeBron, it's, you know, LeBron's the GM and all that other stuff. And I, I think that you, you, you make sure that your circle is, you know, your circle is still there by okay. signing your, signing, sign your GM. Come on. Second thing, um, they're kind of in a conundrum here. Uh, I don't know if you can package enough in a trade to get Paul George for a one-year rental. And that's, that's, that's the thing about Paul George going to, to the Cavs. Is he worth giving up your best asset on the glass other than Tristan Thompson for a one-year rental? Uh, and then to make it worse, the following year, LeBron opts out and goes to L.A. with Paul George. Tyler, can I jump in right quick? Uh-huh. This is why I never understood why they even traded for Kevin Love and gave up Wiggins. To me, it was like, oh, the the blessing is LeBron is coming back. And you have this young dude who could basically be your guy that nowadays you talk about trading for somebody. Well, guess what? If you had Wiggins in his third year now, he's played in two finals with LeBron. He's played in three finals now with LeBron. Coming into his fourth year where he's about to, you know, come up on his money. Now it's not so dire if LeBron goes or stays because guess what? We still got Wiggins. We can re-sign Wiggins and let LeBron do what he wants to do. If LeBron wants to come back for one year and we re-sign Wiggins and it helps the team out, they can do whatever they want. That's why I never got the Kevin Love deal because it was always like the long play would be to have consecutive superstars. They went for the and, – and to, to uh, the rationale behind it, and I think it was verified because they got got the championship. Was they figured they can all they can always uh, they can always draft and rebuild after LeBron's gone. And I think you had the asset out there that was dangling. Your only asset to get some other inside scoring help, so LeBron wouldn't have to do any any post work. He could run the he could actually run the team on the perimeter while you have another threat you could throw the ball into and you know they could get buckets. I mean, yeah, you have Kyrie Irving, but you know you needed a third legitimate scoring option. And at the time, they just weren't sure if Wiggins, who is a three-man, uh, let's you know, let's think about that for a second. He's well, a to me, to me, Wiggins would have been the swing guy. He would have been the guy to play some two guard to kind of let LeBron play comfortable. And then whoever they had, you know, I thought that the way that Blatt was going to come in and run their offense, that the offense itself would have taken care of LeBron having to be in the post or dictating how LeBron got into the post. But, you know, things changed. They didn't stick with it. So, of course, dynamics changed and things like that. But I, I just thought to me, just being a couch armchair GM that Kevin Love is probably going to end up being my, my thought was the odd man out. His game doesn't really fit what LeBron wants to do or how you need to play for LeBron. Where Wiggins is tailor-made because he's going to play on the outside naturally and that just gives LeBron more space to do what LeBron wants to do which is take it to the rim to get you back on your heels and then once you start playing back, he starts and starts pull up, pulling up for his mid-range jumper and then once he gets that going, then he'll start taking you out to the three-point line. Okay, now here's here's another thing we need to consider too. Um, if you're talking about adding more firepower, um, you know, yes, Paul George would be ideal from a two way perspective. Um, but not only is the one year rental a question, um, 
George is a ball-dominant player, too. How is he going to feel being the second and sometimes even the third option on the floor with a Kyrie Irving? Uh, and I think you I think you have to let go. In a, in a move like that, you have to let love go because Kyrie is not going to fetch you enough assets to get um, unless you package it with half, with half of your guards. Um, the talk is uh, Carmelo Anthony would leave his no tra- his no trade clause and come to Cleveland. You give up so much on the defensive backboard if you go Carmelo Anthony that I don't know if that's if that's going to be a great move either. I have no no idea that 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 works because well, two ball dominant players. Well, well, let's say this. Okay, this kind of lead into our next topic, so we'll kind of mm-hmm. fade into it as well. Okay, so let's say we're not even. Let's say that we're being too short sighted here because we all know that LeBron is a much global thinker than just kind of what's right in front of his hands. He he can kind of he thinks kind of way past that. So let's say that Cleveland's not even the destination. Let's say it's somewhere in the West. Jerry West just went to the Clippers, or is rumored to be going to the Clippers. Uh, that's pretty much a done deal. So, so, so apparently now, Dot Rivers will have some help, or will be kind of relinquishing the GM role for him. Is let's say that may be the spot that is ultimately gearing up to make the next run as a super team. It's two years away, so they have enough time to kind of. To figure out what they want to do with Chris Paul and Blake because I think they're kind of locked in to DeAndre Jordan, which I thought was a bad move when they re-signed him. It's going to be a bad move in two years when they try to make this work. But kind of is maybe is that kind of maybe where LeBron is thinking, like, you know, I'll give Cleveland, I'll run this out with Cleveland, gave him the championship. We'll be in the running again for another one. We may get that one too. But ultimately the Clippers may be the spot that everybody's going to try to load up to, and then you have that direct competition with Golden State. I have one issue with this, with that, with that idea. LeBron and Doc, I don't like that combination. I really don't. Um, I think that yes, LeBron doesn't mind playing for a, a demanding coach, but I don't see LeBron wanting to jail and be in and adjust to having to um, to give more effort on the defensive end that Doc is going to make make him make him do that if he goes to the Clippers. Uh, also, the same thing with Chris Paul. Um, I would like to see them play together, and I, I know that they're friends, but their on court personalities are too much alike. And while in theory the Clippers would be a much better defensive team than they are right now. They're going to have to get in order to make this happen. There's going to be some some firepower they're going to have to give up, and that leads them to uh, why they're getting blasted by the Warriors every time. It's because they don't have enough firepower, and they are just just terrible defensively. Um, and they still haven't figured out who's going to be there forward. I think the Clippers actually have a better shot with Carmelo Anthony being the three man than LeBron James actually coming over there in two years. Uh, I think that LeBron actually has a better shot of being able to create the team that he wants with the assets that he would want to have to move pieces around if he went to the Lakers. Okay. All right. So, yeah, L.A. LA may be the spot. LA, LA, I think it's the spot, but I think it would be, it would make sense. It would make more sense and it would be more of a win now mode if he could. He and another free agent, particularly Paul George, 
could team up with whoever the Lakers get between the next two drafts, be it Lonzo Ball or or Michael Porter or or you know one of the, one of the dominant uh, a dominant post player, uh, whoever that may be, and then you roll out a team that's got you might have another Cleveland Cavaliers on their hands in two years in L.A. Who knows? But I think he's got a better shot of being in a t- in a situation that he wants if he goes to the Lakers. Right. I just, I just, I, I mean, it, it, it sound the Clippers sound nice, but I don't know if he can get along with with Doc. Okay, well, you can always get along with us here at Know the Score by following us on Twitter at KTS Pod. Now we're gonna we talked about it a little bit, tease a little bit. We're gonna talk about some NBA draft talk. As over the last uh, twenty four hours, thirty six hours, a little bit of trade talk has been starting to stir up between Boston and the Seventy Sixers. Looks like Boston's trying to maybe get down to the third spot, have the Sixers come up to take the number one pick. And then, you know, like, presumably, I guess they still would take folks, but you never know what they have on their draft board. So, Tyler, should the Sixers make this play, take the number one pick and, you know, accelerate their process? Man, these, this has been the wildest couple of couple of days. Uh the Boston Celtics, remember, have a have a legitimate top three pick to play with next year, which it has created all of this talk. Um, they're playing with house money here. They, I mean, Danny Ainge holds all the cards. He's he's got like and a part as a part of the deal, they would also get a future number one pick from the Sixers too. So yeah, he's playing that red back style of GM. He is he is literally holding about you know this is one of those where one of those hands where you got about six or seven spades and. And you just trying to just just put out there, put out there your your, your middle level spade and, and catch a book early and and see what happens. Uh, he's playing with house money, so he can actually get this whatever he can actually get this pick one. He can pick, of course, he can do the do the conservative thing and take false. But you throw in the Sixers throwing another number one, which means you could, wow, which means you could. Uh, you could get some. You could get more picks, more top level picks. Whew, that's an enticing deal. And I know the Celtics fans are kind of, kind of uh, being impatient here, almost because it's another trade. It's another trade, and they feel like they're very close to Cleveland. No, they're not. No, no, no. This season was only a tease for the Celtics fans. They know where they are. They're probably the second best or the third best team in the Eastern Conference. And there's not one player in the draft that's going to make that's going to leap them two levels ahead and make them a legitimate finals contender overnight. Ainge is doing Ainge even taking this deal if he does, or taking Markel Fultz and not doing anything at all, uh there's really not a not a lose lose situation for him. Yeah. I, I-, I think I think he has to entertain it just because it's enticing and he has a number one pick in the bag next year. Right. I think Boston is the one team that has a coach and right now the front office and like you're talking about all this leeway with where they're going to be picking in the draft next few years, they have a real chance to change the way the East plays basketball because I think that he's about to try to play a style Reminisce a little bit to the Warriors, but maybe a little bit more, a little tougher, because it seems like the perimeter guys he's getting are more defensive guys first, but they can shoot. Mm-hmm. So it seems like he's trying to build his his shooting, but but have his guys be a defensive 
team because they switch very well and they give the Warriors the worst fits. They do. When the Warriors were on their winning streak, the Celtics were the team to beat them. When they played them again the next time, they only won by like three. For some reason, the way Boston has their team formulated and the way the style of their offense is successful against the Warriors, they just have to figure out how to beat LeBron. Yeah, well, well. See, here's the, here's the interesting thing about about Boston. It's a it is basically a pass and cut old school motion offense, just like Butler had. Uh, no, no, no coincidence because it's Brad Stevens. Uh, but let's let's add the add to the fact that they could very well get their shooter, their shooting two guard, in uh, Gordon Haywood, who of course is a Stevens recruit uh, this coming off season. So, um, if Gordon Haywood can come there and they use this pick with Markel Fultz, they dynamically improve this offense. I mean, you could go three, you could go small, you could go big, you can, uh, man, you could you could play a lot if you get out if you get one of if you get Gordon Haywood, this deal could be massive. If you could get Gordon Haywood and pull off this trade to take. Um, and if if the Celtics take a guy like a Josh Jackson, uh, the forward from Kansas, which is an immediate upgrade over um, over their uh, over their starting small forward Jay Crowder, wow! I mean, this is this is nuts. Yeah, Tuesday night is going to be crazy because um, you know the trade talks, and and you know this is kind of going to be it. Like mostly once the players are picked too, because you know how NBA works. A lot of the trades happen after you know teams let me pick for you, and I'll pick for you, and then we'll make this trade. So Tuesday night is going to be really exciting, especially at the top. Now we'll move on to a, the next conversation. I'd like to have is De'Aaron Fox or Lonzo Ball. The Lakers are going to be picking at number two. There's been a lot of speculation coming out of, out of L.A. that, you know, the Lakers aren't as high on ball as, you know, they want you to believe. You know, there's been a lot of reports about his workout was less than impressive. And, you know, they've kind of been leaning more towards Fox. They see kind of the tempo and the speed that they want to play at coming out of Fox. So I'm going to just post a question to you, Tyler. You're Magic Johnson. You're Rob Palinka. You're a genie bus. You're sitting here at number two. You've got all this stuff going on around you um, between Boston and the 76ers. Who do you want? Do you want Fox or do you want Ball? I'm taking um, – I'm going to take Lonzo at the um, – I'm, I'm, I'm at a uh, – because uh, – let's, let's look at the Lakers themselves as a team. Lonzo Ball's at his best is when he's surrounded by guys who can score with him. You got two guys who are can fill it up in Crawford and Brandon Ingram, who's going to be a, a legitimate scorer. Uh, Fox probably has the edge in just overall talent as far as mid-range and, a, and you know, slash and drive, but Lonzo's playmaking ability is a better fit in LA. He may not be the better player, but for the Lakers, Ball is the better fit. Ball's passing and Ball's court vision and his ability to see things two plays ahead, and you can clearly see that as you watch this season. Uh, you know, and yes, he did benefit from having great finishers alongside of him. But the fact is. I know he can get to the ball. He can get those guys the ball. I'm not sure if Fox wants to get those guys the ball. 
if he comes to L.A. I know Fox wants to get to the cup and score. That's great, but that's not going to help the team get better. Right. For me, the guy who scares me, if you're talking about just, hey, we're going to go out here and play in my in your guy versus my guy, I'm scared to death of Fox just because he's so fast. And like you're saying, if everything's set up for Alonzo Ball to just be a passer and be a playmaker, then, yeah, he'll, he's going to look really good. But if it's set up where they're going to have to rely on him to kind of score two until they can get these pieces to him, he might not look so good for a year or two. You know, it may be kind of like, what's wrong with Lonzo Ball? That may be the talk. And everybody may be really down on him in the beginning because he just doesn't have the ability that people will want to see in this era of point guards who can attack and get points. This isn't this isn't like 1997 basketball right now where if your point guard can get out there and get you eight points and get you 12 assists, 14 assists, then people are good with that. Now people want to see your point guard average double figures, make threes, and the assist numbers can hover around seven or eight, and people are kind of cool with that. So if I'm the Lakers, I want – for me, if I'm coaching the Lakers, I'd take Fox because I just figure we can add a stretch four. We can add somebody else to shoot around him to take up for his lack of three-point shooting. But his ability to get to the middle of the court is going to be unparalleled because, you know, even if he does gets collapsed upon, he's showing enough passing at Kentucky – to where he's a willing passer. You know, he's not going to just force it. He will pass the ball. So that would just make their whole game plan deadly if they want to try to mimic what the Warriors are doing with this three-point, you know, attack first and then kind of take your layups as they come. So for me, I'm a Fox guy. Um, Just a one-on-one matchups, head-up matchups as well, just the way that Fox was giving them the blues on defense um, just made me really sold on Fox. So that'll be interesting. Probably for for two-thirds of the teams, I would take Fox. Two-thirds of the teams. Um, I, I don't need uh, – there are there are a few teams that will take ball because they need they – they either already have a guy who can get to the rim at the point or they have a lot of scoring and they just need somebody who can, who can make – who can, you know, distribute properly and not right. necessarily be built on just uh, – just a speed guy. The Denver Nuggets remind me of that with Moutier. Moutier's a get-to-the-rim guy, but he's so inefficient at shooting that that offense is kind of in a lull even though they're, are, they're steadily improving. Mm-hmm. Um, especially with that last that, that trading deadline trade to get um, to um, the big guys. The yeah. big guys, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. To, to me, ball makes a lot of sense to go to Boston. As well, just because he would be able to pair up with Thomas in the backcourt, he would help them on defense right away because it wouldn't be you know be a little bit easier to cover up for him um, on defense. And then you know, then Thomas could you know not have to even worry about thinking about being the distributor that he has to be in the like, first three quarters to kind of keep everybody honest. And he could just go out there and just go to the basket and go crazy, kind of set reset everybody's role and take a lot of pressure off of Thomas to, you know, run the team and score the ball, too. He could just go out there and just score. So, you know, for me, I think that ball would really work well in Boston right now, just the way their team is set up. Last but not least, as part of every NBA draft, there's always going to be some sleepers. So, Tyler, I'll start with you first. Who do you think could be a sleeper in this draft? Somebody that, you know, maybe low first round or maybe somebody maybe in the second round because a lot of good basketball players have come out of the second round of the NBA draft. Uh. My sleeper, 
the one that the sleeper that everybody is talking about is uh, a guy from let's say a big man from Florida State who you know who was who was really good because I watched a lot of ACC basketball and while he wasn't necessarily a quote unquote star um, he he can he can definitely muscle some people off the block. Uh, I'm trying to think of his name right now, but uh, but he's steadily rising up up the uh, up the draft boards and could change a lot of folks' fortunes um, if he if he uh, gets drafted. Now, my other sleeper would be, um, and I I don't call him a sleeper, but um, Luke Kennard. Okay. Is, is is the is the sleeper? Jonathan Isaac is what I'm thinking about for Florida State. Okay, uh, right. Isaac Isaac had a unbelievable workout. Um, he had it. Yeah, he actually had an unbelievable workout and a an outstanding um outstanding spring. Uh, and he's actually going to be uh he's actually considered the number twelve prospect and um and rising. Kennard is my guy at, at uh, from Duke. Um. Bernard gives you so much uh, scoring ability. Uh, he's he's a lefty, which which is a natural problem to defend. He's a terrific shooter. He's a he's an efficient driver. Um, reminds me a lot of it. Yeah, I mentioned Gordon Haywood earlier. Kennard gives me that type of vibe, um, except he's left-handed, and he'd be a perfect. And I mean, a perfect pick for uh, the Phoenix Suns. I'm all I'm 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 all for him going there, but the Sun the Suns are actually picking four, so they'll probably take Tatum. So Kennard right. is probably gonna end up around eleven or twelve. So maybe somewhere like a like a um you know, he could be he could end up in Philadelphia. Could be if Philly's second pick at it if they decide not to move it. Um but I, I think that Kennard doesn't get as much credit as he should. Um but yeah, he, he definitely qualifies. I, I really like I really like guys who can can get their own shot, and on top of that, um, they're they're difficult to defend as lefties. I mean, you see, look at Rodney Hood at Duke. Um, Rodney Hood was another Duke Duke guy um, who's kind of blossomed out in out in Utah, and kind of um, not necessarily obscurity, but he, we know he can play. And Kennard kind of fits that role. Um, my number one sleeper is going to be uh, Lorkin from out of Arizona. Big guy. Ooh, Larry Mark, uh, seven foot tall guy. Larry Mark, uh, marketing. Yeah, yeah, marketing. Yeah, is that yeah. yeah marketing. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's, he's gonna he's ball. gonna be probably yeah my probably my first guy because I mean he's what kind of basketball is right now big guy who can shoot who can play defense in the paint who can rebound so anybody who's kind of looking for a stretch four I think that he's gonna be right up there number one on the list uh, Collins from uh, Gonzaga the freshman that that went into the lottery this year. Yeah, I think he, he's going to be a steal for whoever gets him. He may be like into the first round, but whoever gets him, if they can kind of, he has kind of like San Antonio Spurs written all over him, kind of got to mm-hmm. keep on the bench for a year or two. And then bow, he just pops on the scene. And then my last guy would be Jordan Bell from Oregon. Also a guy who'll probably go near the end of the first round, but he's real athletic, a great rebounder, defensive guy. Uh, if he could, you know, develop a little bit of a jump shot, Things could be, you know, Scott could be the limit for him as well. Bell was unstoppable against uh, UCLA uh, in both of their games this year. Um, I actually, I watched us, I watched those two games specifically, and he he looked like even with ball on the floor, 
he looked at times like he was the best player on the court, and they they had no answers for him. Uh, actually, um, he pretty much knew um, he had to go toe to toe with with uh, with UCLA size in the paint, and um, and you know new and pretty much neutralized him in both games. Um, UCLA had to come back. Uh, and that's probably one of Ball's best games of the year, but it was likely because Bell Bell couldn't be guarded. Um, right. Yeah, he's definitely interesting. Now, uh, I, I Markinu was the reason to watch Arizona basketball this year until uh, Nate, until uh, Trier came back. While while Trier was suspended, marketing essentially carried Arizona. Um, he was definitely their he was definitely their best player. Uh, there were times where they could not get a basket. When um, while they were waiting for a trier to um, sit out his suspension for um, PED use, um, Markin really developed in, on his own. And uh, really, the last two years, he's been kind of like um, we we were kind of expecting uh, the Sabonis kid out of Gazaka to be what Markin is, you know. Right. But Markin right. is a bit bigger, and he's still got that same range. So. I would love to see him end up on a team like a. Um, could you imagine a team like Detroit getting him at at a uh, at twelve or or even the um, or even Sacramento at ten? Yeah, I mean, the, he, he would, he's he's tailor made for Detroit for where Stan Van Gundy wants to do because you know Stan Van Gundy wants to get as many guys around the three point line as he can. Um, so yeah, that would kind of fit right in with the, the way they kind of want to play basketball. So um, if you want more comprehensive coverage on the NBA draft, I would advise you guys to tune in to the 2.1 Seconds to Madness podcast. As a uh, K Baz from the Hot Fire Starter podcast and Russell Hingline, they give you over an hour of uh, a mock draft. Um, they have their individual picks as they go through the first round, and uh, they give a breakdown on each player and why they think they would be a good fit for each team they pick them for so um yeah you guys take a listen to that leading up here to the draft for a little bit deeper uh, more comprehensive coverage uh, really good talk between uh, those two guys who probably produce the best college basketball podcast in the country uh for my money so uh, go ahead and give them guys a listen uh tyler i'll change it over to you so you can go ahead and uh, drop us drop some things on us let's take over the show all right uh let's let's talk about the uh the whole concept of sports awards shows as we know coming up this week is the nba regular season award show um which is kind of built like the nfl awards where they just they're just going to give them out in one one big ceremony uh there's a lot of talk just uh you know really um about the nba awards of course the discussion of who's going to win the mvp and um i think it's is it and after kind of an afterthought now, because the NBA finals are over, um, since you didn't announce them, like, like the NFL awards take place the day before the Super Bowl. So isn't it kind of an afterthought that they're being done now instead of during the season? I think that the thing about it is they want to be able to get the guys there to have, you know, even the champions there, or at least be able to offer them a chance to be there. And if you do that, outside of the finals starting or before the finals or during the season, then there's a chance that they probably won't show up because they have to focus in on the finals. Now we had that big gap this year between the end of the conference finals and the start of the finals where, yeah, it probably would have made sense and probably would have been logistical to do it this year, but that won't always be the case. So 
regardless of the Super Bowl, where there's only two teams that play, and usually, you know, if the MVP is there, they can kind of set it up where he can come out there the night before, and it's not a big deal. Nobody's all, you know, upset about it. But for the finals, that that necessarily is such a long grind and long series. I don't think people have that much leeway to kind of let their guys go out there and and do the ceremony thing and all that stuff. So, I think it's just a different different point of view. Um, I look at it as um, I've been saying all along via social media that it's only a lead up to build the NBA draft. Uh, you want to create content for your media providers. Um, you look at you look at your, your relationship with ESPN and you look at all of the, the radio and TV guys that are there, they need content. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a big listener to other major podcasts and the talk is that there's, it's a struggle to find content and during the uh, summer months after the finals. So now you put this in the same week as your, your draft. And now the NBA gives you a free week, to talk, you can talk nothing but basketball, and it's still relevant because you got the debate of the MPB conversation. You got the All NBA debate uh, recharged. You got uh, Defensive Player of the Year is always a conversation of debate. Uh, you can talk all you can talk all that for for two or three days, and then you got the draft on on uh, Thursday. So uh, I I think that for media purposes, it's great. But I, I don't think that the effect of it and the actual appreciation of the award uh, keeps its luster when you announce it as late as it is. Because I, I've, I've already said from jump, players respect the finals MVP. I think that that has much more meaning than the uh, the regular season MVP. And then yet, and yes, I know it's the regular season and you played all these games, but the finals MVP is a direct relative to the ring and, and in our driven society, our bottom line results driven society. That's what matters. I mean, George, George isn't talking about his MVP trophies. He's talking about his six finals MVPs. I think, like you said, it's a great marketing tool to showcase the league. I mean, basketball has always been cool. It's always been in the mainstream as the coolest sport. You know, the most celebrities try to hang around. The most visible celebrities hang around. The players are the most visible. You can see their whole bodies, and everybody knows a basketball player when they see him walk down the street, like a baseball player or a football player. Uh-huh. So I think to actually have this award, it's kind of overdue kind of for them. So I think it's going to be a lot of fun, and it's just going to add – like you said, another reason to talk about the NBA and, and have some more debates in the barbershops and on television once the awards come out, because then it's going to reopen up all that of, oh, okay, well, this person should have been in this category too, or that, or the third. And then, you know, you get that whole thing starting up, like you said, right into the draft and then into free agency. That's going to be really wild this year. So I think this is going to be one of those summers where the NBA is going to have your attention. Uh, right up there with uh, NFL training camps, um, unless you know somebody major gets injured uh, in a training camp early on. I think the NBA is going to be right up there with uh, dueling headlines uh, in the summertime throughout until football actually starts. Yeah, you have uh, you pretty much have the uh, you have those conversations. You have ESPN is going to roll their thirty for thirty series of movies and E sixties on on Sunday for the bios. Um, you're going to have, and of course, you have baseball. So there, there's definitely going to be some topics of interest um, going on uh, between really 
uh, mid-July, in a non-Olympic year, mid-July, and uh, when you get to August when training camps really kick in and then folks will be tuned in to, to hard knocks. And uh, that's pretty much how the summer goes. Uh, yeah, I mark off the summer by once we get to the All-Star game in baseball, that's kind of like the last quarter pole before like I turn – Full attention to thinking about football. I'm one of the footy duddies who still gets jazzed up for the baseball all star game. I still like it. It's still fun to me. So um, it's, it's definitely made for fans, and I, I can appreciate. I can definitely appreciate. Uh, you know the home run derby and the all star game, and I, I don't. I think that taking away the the home field advantage at, uh, portion of it. Uh, Kind of, I don't. Well, I, I, I don't know really what to think of doing that, but I understand why it's being, why it's being done. But um, well, it's, it's still it's great smart. Great to see. It, it, it is. It is. Um, it's smart. That was the dumbest thing ever. The All Star Game. You just should. Have, you just have to manage your team better because guess what, guys? You're playing with the best players in the world. The game ain't going to extra innings, so don't burn through everybody. You know, you, you've got to manage your team, thinking that hey, we could get a two to two game here and I'm going to need at least a closer and a long reliever so we can go a few more innings. Mm-hmm. But I, I, you know, I, that, I, I, I think you have, you put too much pressure on the managerial staff, to be honest, as far as, you know, yeah. you got one decision with, with an all-star that could determine everything. And I, I kind of think you, that's not the kind of pressure you want in an all-star game. I, I agree. I, I can definitely see that. Right. Um, the, the one thing that they should probably do is just expand the roster by like two more guys. And then, you know what I'm saying? You wouldn't have that problem. But, you know, they're not going to do that. Um, and as we segue into our next topic, um, we can really kick in and talk about baseball. Um, as we take a look at the standings, uh, it's the uh, what really sticks out is the play of um, Aaron Judge, who is just taking the league by storm, um, he's just just unbelievable. It's just, I guess, it's, he's just one of those guys that just has, you know, he has that it. Um, you know, he's just catching catching hold of everything, and and you know, it seems like every good every good swing that he gets on a ball, the ball seems to fly. Um, but uh, anything. Um, Anything that you've seen so far, as far as the uh, any surprises, as far as baseball, other than not the obvious, which would be Aaron Judge uh, for the Yankees. Uh, just speaking on Judge, to me, watching him play, he has really good discipline at the plate to be such a tall guy. He really understands his strike zone, and I think that's the reason why when he hits the baseball, it goes so far and travels so far is because he's not swinging at a lot of pitches that are outside of where he can get to. I mean, the kid is six, seven. So his strike zone is very big, but he has a great ability even to be so young to zero in on kind of, Hey, this is where the ball needs to be. And if you throw it on the fringes of where I want to hit it, then I'm willing to live with you taking a strike or you have to be so perfect that if you don't get it, right on the fringe of where it needs to be. If you do make a mistake, I'm going to make it go so far that you're not going to give me anything else to hit the next time I come up here and I'm just going to take my walk. And I think that's a lot of things that a lot of young sluggers um, 
don't do once they start getting on the streak and start getting the notoriety for being a slugger is they start trying to hit everything out of the park and don't take their walks because that eventually you're going to get respect where they don't throw the ball over the plate and just hope you get yourself out. And if you can take your walks, you'll, you know, it just enhances your ability to hit the ball over the fence because now they know they got to throw you some really, really, really good pitches to get you out. Um, my other thing about baseball right now is just the Cubs. They're kind of struggling, scuffling. They got a little bit of that 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 hangover for um, you know win the World Series and how can you blame them? Um, and the National National League Central as a whole is really tight. Um, the Cardinals kind of scuffled. You know they're kind of back into it now. The Brewers they've been playing some pretty good baseball underneath the radar, so that kind of division has been pretty good to watch. Yeah, also, the, the Central, division, which is a, which is a surprise. Uh, Milwaukee's right, up, right. up uh, two, two and a half games up on Chicago as of right now, which is which is incredible. But the issue with the Cubs to me is that just the timely hitting isn't there right now. Right. Not having Dexter Fowler is proven to be a, a bigger loss than they thought just because uh, he was always on base and he was always great and stuff. Um, the way that Joe Madden likes to play, he likes to put pressure on you with stealing bases and things like that. And right now they've kind of uh, just reverted to just kind of, you know, home run team and they don't have a lot of people on base. So they're just hitting solo shots right now. And uh, you can get beat, uh, you know, hitting uh, solo homers. Uh, it's kind of hard to get beat when you're hitting two and three run homers. So that was kind of the formula that they used last year that hasn't showed up for them this year. Um, over in the American League, being a Baltimore Orioles fan, um, I don't know what's going on right now. Their pitching hasn't really got any better. Thought that their pitching was going to head in a better direction beginning of the year, but it's kind of regressed. And then their hitting has been kind of scuffling. Uh, Chris Davis has gone on a DL now, so they're you know down one more bat. Um, the Central, um, surprised that Kansas City has been struggling as much as they have. I, I knew that Cleveland and the White Sox would kind of, kind of be battling here. Um, I like what they're kind of doing. And then in the West, uh, what can you say, man? The, the Houston Astros are just fantastic. They're fun to watch. Them and the Yankees are probably the most enjoyable team to watch. They're young. Um, they just have a bunch of kids out there that are going out there playing baseball real hard. Um, they have really good defense. I think that's kind of one thing that's Houston's calling card right now is they're strong mm-hmm. in the middle. Uh, shortstop, second base combination, center field. Um, just fantastic. And last but not least, like we talked about last week, just Colorado Rockies. Yeah. I mean, they're out there in the West, and they are just putting it on folks, and they're putting it on folks with their pitching late in games. Um, you know, if they have any type of lead home or away, I mean, they are just locking the game down. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if they can kind of keep that up through the summer. Um, you know, it's going to warm up in Denver, which means the home runs are going to go up. And can they keep the ball down and, and you know, keep it inside the ballpark? Because, I mean, in relativity, Coors Field is a huge park. <laughs> but because of the way the atmosphere is set up, the ball makes it seem like a small place. But um, if they can continue to keep the ball in the park and on the ground, uh, the Rockies might be a really tough place to play in the playoffs. Because you guys know it snows there in October, and nobody likes to play baseball in the cold. Uh, another surprise. Um, you could see this coming a little bit last year, but injuries kind of kind of set them back. The Arizona Diamondbacks are sitting 15, almost 15 games above 500. What in the world? Um, right. They're they're darn near going from worst to first right now, and uh, it, just what a difference a what a difference a year makes. I mean, when when things tend to work out in the um, 
in the bullpen, uh, so, I mean, it starts with your starting pitching. Your starting pitching is, is performing. They're getting a lot of quality, uh, tons of quality starts. Um, they're, they're dangerously close to exceeding what they got last year. Uh, but uh, they've had, you know, they finally, the hitting has actually come around to help out um, Gold, uh, Goldsmith, and and that's been a, re- a remarkable story. Yeah, they're they're literally, um, yeah. And you look at look at the West. You got three teams that are fifteen games above five hundred and better, which mm-hmm. is which is incredible. Um, and yeah. look at and they're putting runs up. I mean, look at their look at the scoring differential. At uh, the Rockies are pl- uh, plus sixty nine, but the Diamondbacks are plus eighty four. And the Dodgers are plus eighty nine. I mean, they you know they put the bat on the ball, and plus they win at home. Right, uh, they've done extremely well at home. Matter of fact, the Diamondbacks are twenty six and nine at home, which is which is incredible. All things considered, that they're talking about moving to a uh, ownership wants to move into a new stadium, which of course has been <laughs> met with with some uh, you know they've had some increased attendance numbers, but it's. Uh, once, once you hear a new stadium, that's that's usually never good news for the fans. Um, another thing to, well, hold on before you uh, you have to give a, a big shout out, even though he's not there anymore, and 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 they and he got fired right before the season started. You have to big give a big shout out to Dave Stewart. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and for what he did in their front office to set them up, because like you said, for two years they had kind of been laying in the weeds, but their injury situation had kind of held them back. And unfortunately, Dave Stewart lost his job because the expectations uh, were high and they did not meet them. But this year, it seems that they are going to meet them. And this is, you know, directly uh, the work of Dave Stewart and the players that he has on the field as their GM. And you look and, um, you, look and you see where you have, uh, there is clearly... In baseball, there's you starting to see the haves and have-nots. Um, you got the, the American League East separated by seven games. The Central is separated by five games, mm-hmm. and then the only other division that's even, that's even close is uh, the NL Central, where you even have the Reds still in it. They're only of uh, seven games down. Uh, I, I think that it's shaping up to you're going to have three really good divisions worth watching, and the uh, the top teams in the NL are just gonna gonna bottom feed until uh, until the playoffs. So July and, and August really kind of uh, shape themselves. You hope that there there are are no injuries, but you know that's baseball. So we'll, we'll uh, see what happens. One one last story to watch is um, can the Nationals find themselves a closer through either their minor league system, through somebody that they have on the roster in their bullpen right now, or do they go out and make a trade? Because that's really the only drama that they're going to have in mm-hmm. their division. They're up by yep. so far um, right now. And, and, you know, don't really see the Braves or, or Miami, you know, making a move. The Mets are dead in the water because their pitching staff is just, you know, their injury status is just, um, you know, going to keep them too far out of the race. So the Nationals game plan right now is basically looking at the playoffs and locking down the ninth inning because the games that they're losing is because they're blowing leads that they have in the eighth and ninth innings. And, you know, what happens in May and what happens in June can still be a problem in October. And the Nationals definitely don't want that to crop up. That's the reason why they don't advance 
again to the World Series when they clearly have maybe the best team, at least in the National League, for sure. Well, well, as I say, it's after Memorial Day, and baseball will now take the mantle. Um, uh, I'm just looking to, looking forward to the remainder of the season and eventually the playoffs. And it, you know, it really kicks in, like you said, after the All Star Game and uh, and that break. And then we'll see if uh, people can keep their, uh, you know, I, and and usually your teams with the best bullpens are the teams that actually uh, do well and particularly in those one-game playoff formats. Um, so we'll, we'll see if uh, see if the Astros can um, can keep it up and and, may, and maybe, uh, you know, get an MVP season from um, from Correa. Uh, if, uh, he keeps, if, he keeps, if he keeps pitching the way he is, though, they're going to have to give some MVP votes to Keiko because, I mean, the, the, man is, the man is impressive when he goes out on that mound. And even if he doesn't win it, he still needs to be in the conversation. All right, just a reminder that you are listening to Know the Score. Don't forget to, uh, you can tweet us via our our uh, our Twitter, at K-T-S-P-O-D. Um, and our Twitter handles are uh, Don DeLorente and T-A Ball number one. Uh, as we, we're getting close to closing out the show, um, you know, this weekend is Father's Day weekend, and usually if we're not watching the finals, there's the... Uh, there's the U.S. Open. Um, you know, I've remember sharing. A, I remember the uh, just the epic Father's Day experiences with athletes and their dads. Um, Foot Locker ran a great commercial this week with the NBA draft prospects reflecting on their relationship with their fathers. Um, that's just another notch in the legacy. You have Tiger Woods uh, winning the uh, U.S. Open on Father's Day um, and sharing the trophy with his dad and. Uh, of course, Michael Jordan's uh, epic uh, uh, celebration, celebration reflecting on his father, where he just fell to the ground in tears, uh, winning his uh, his uh, fourth NBA title on um, on Father's Day, and that was the first one he had won without his dad being there. So, um, just uh, I mean, Father's Day is that uh, in sports. Is is a big deal. You got fathers and sons, um, both athletes. You look at the Bonds. You look at Bonds. You look at the Griffies. Uh, you even look at Clay Thompson and his dad, Michael Thompson, who are NBA kids, NBA dads, and and his son is now, um, you know, on the track to be recognized as one of the greats. Um, I, uh, it's just wonderful to see um, our athletes reflect and remember their dads. So you look at Dale Dale Earnhardt Jr and how much he misses his father and when he talks about his dad and how his dad was an influence on his life and driving. That's Those are always heartfelt stories. Um, even P.K. Subban earlier this year uh, talking about the relationship that his dad and how he and his brothers got into hockey and how his father was always supportive. Um, you know, I, I can reflect on my own. Uh, my, my dad, who was a, um, a sports writer um, wrote for the Greensboro News and Record before switching fields. Um, he actually uh, served nine years at the uh, media relations office at North Carolina A&T. And when I joined the office as an intern my freshman year, I would have found a, uh, a scrapbook where my dad clipped all of his clippings from 
um, from his time at A&T. And I can see myself in some of the pictures uh, where he um, he celebrated with North Carolina A&T as they uh, as they were on their run of seven straight appearances in the NCAA tournament. Feet that's only been matched uh, twice. Um, you know, you win your conference tournament seven years in a row. Um, I think the likes of Kentucky and Duke have, have are the only schools ever to match that. Um, you know, just remembering, uh, he taught me how to how to write and how to do a sports recap. And I would send him my stuff, and he would always be reflective. and And he told me that I, you know, I had potential to actually do this for a living, and and for quite a while I did. And it was it was a great time and. Uh, we still share sports conversations, and when he calls me and we talk about uh, what's going on it's, as far as the sports world, it's kind of our bond that's always going to be there. Um, Don, if you have any, you know, Father's Day thoughts and sports and how that that shaped your life, you know, um, you know, feel free to reflect on that. Um, I just think kind of just going back and watching uh, Tiger Woods win the U.S. Open on Father's Day um, is always kind of been my kind of big sports Father's Day moment. Um, not really anything, you know, bonding like that with my dad or playing sports or whatever when I played or whatever for Father's Day memory that stick out. Just kind of just the biggest events have always been kind of on Father's Day, um, you know, U.S. Open, big races, finals, things like that. Um, Michael Jordan, like you said, um, just falling down in the heap in the locker room with the trophy, just crying his eyes out. That kind of stuck out, uh, sticks out as kind of Father's Day, something that happened on Father's Day. I think maybe Dale Earnhardt Jr. Uh, might have won the Michigan race when uh, when he was in his long uh, losing streak. I think he actually might have broke the slump on Father's Day. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, so that so those are kind of some things that stick out uh, to me. Just you know, on the Father's Day Sunday, um, kind of sports things that that are just at the front of my mind. So, yeah, uh, you talk about uh, you know living up to. Uh, sons living up to their father's legacy. Uh, you look at uh, even Brett Hall, uh, who, wow, you got to feel for him because, you know, Bobby Hall is considered to be one of the greatest until Gretzky came along. And then, you know, Brett had to wait a while to even, you know, to, you know, he as much, many goals as he put up, uh, he, you know, he had to wait forever to win a championship. And, you know, he's, you know, he, he was saddled with a lot of, uh, a lot of the expectations of his dad being a, a um, hockey icon, um, you know, it kind of kind of makes me reflect on how we uh, how we try to emulate, you know, emulate. But at the same time, you want to be we, we like to be our own men. And when uh, Hall won the championship and uh, and with a uh, Stanley Cup. At Stanley Cup winning goal in overtime in Game Six in '99, um, that pretty much put him on the map. As you know, he's finally emerged from his father's shadow because he got that Cup title, and now he's um, executive VP of his his team um, of Saint of the Saint Louis Blues. So you know, it's I always wonder how those relationships uh, you know happen when you know, fathers and sons get in sports, particularly in the sports that their fathers excelled in. Uh, you look at Henry and Mike Bibby, and they didn't have that type of relationship. They were almost, almost estranged um, while Bibby was playing. I mean, it's it's improved now. And You look at Austin and Doc Rivers, you know, just those those type and the, um, those type of relationships you, 
you kind of wonder how the how it feels to be the the kid, you know. And it's 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 always interesting to hear them talk. And so I will be looking for those type of stories that you know the media can, media tends to cover on Father's Day, and and I'll always have um, good memories of you know my dad and I talking sports. Um, any other final thoughts that you want to add for the show, uh, Don? Uh, real quick, the Redskins named Doug Williams, the basically the head of uh, player personnel for the front office. Um, so now the front office is basically Doug Williams and Bruce Allen and then Jay Gruden, and they'll all come together for these, um, you know, 53-man roster and, and the direction of the team going forward. Now that we got the front office in somewhat back intact, let's go ahead and sign Kirk Cousins, please. Do it now before the 15th of July, before Derek Carr gets re-signed and the number goes through the roof for what they have to pay Kirk Cousins. I mean, it'll blow people away that he's going to make like $32 million a season, but that'll pale in comparison when uh, uh, Derek Carr gets his $35 million a season like a few weeks later. So uh, they need to go ahead and do that. The Redskins could have some stability for the first time in like 20 years because it looks like they finally might be on the right path to being a contender and not just, uh, you know, every four years being a mix type of team. Okay. Um, my, my final thought for the show is that the super team narrative is overrated. The fans don't care about it. The fans just want to debate, have something to debate about uh, in regards of individual talent. We're in an era where players are going to do whatever it takes to get a ring, particularly they're the, top-of-the-line players, their best players. There's no organic way to win a championship in this salary cap slash free agency era. Build through the draft and, 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 and lose and lose and lose and lose versus having the money and having the clout and having the assets to reconstruct your team and win. I think I know which option most GMs would like to have. Um, you look at players switching teams and joining uh, joining better teams. You look at Aqib Tlaib's comments when you know, just talking about Kevin Durant which is laughable because Aqib Tlaib left the Patriots to join the Broncos in order to win a Super Bowl. Okay. You know, that's just that's hilarious in itself. Um it's not a. Uh, I don't think that the super team narrative is really worth discussing because there's no parity. There's not really any parity, particularly in the NBA. Um, you have terrible GMs. You have terrible teams. You have owners that choose making money over mandating that team sign sign great players and spend a lot of money to get great players. And that's just not in the NBA, but that's in all sports. Uh, the super team discussion only exists for media content and barbershops. That's it. For myself, I, I'm, I'm not going to have those great, greatest of all time conversations without taking into account what they did on the court, not necessarily who their teammates were or, or you know, their their clutch that the 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 quote unquote clutch narrative. No, I'm not going to do that. We're just going to talk about what they did on the court. Did they score? Did they defend? Did they rebound? Did they contribute to their team? And were they better than anybody else doing it? And that, again, that rely, that goes on all sports. For Don Del Rente, for 
our two co-hosts, That's So Jesse and Nebias Wilborn. I'm Tyler Ball, and now you know the score.